0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download. (music) Hi. Hey, happy Friday, everyone. It is July 24th. It is actually 9:15 p.m. Alex and I are just now getting to do the podcast. We're gonna zip through a few stories, and then we are going to lead into our interview with Corinne Wadera, who is the managing director of Casa Verde Capital, a venture fund that he co-founded with Snoop Dogg back in 2016. He's a really interesting guy, and I think you're gonna enjoy the interview. So kicking off this week's news segment is Carta, which was in the headlines this week. Now, if you're not familiar, Carta was was founded eight years ago, and it's become a darling in the venture community, both because a lot of Silicon Valley VCs are now investors in the company, but also because of its ultimate ambition. It launched as a way for venture-backed companies to manage equity, issue securities, and track their cap tables. But from there, it just kept tacking on services. Carta now provides portfolio analytics, including deal IRRs and cash management. It helps VCs distribute their quarterly investor reports, and it integrates with tax and payroll providers. It has so many pieces in place that founder and CEO Henry Ward told me last year that Carta intends to become the private stock market for companies. But of course, with fast growth comes growing pains. So the company, which grew from 130 full-time employees in 2016 to 943 employees in April of this year, laid off 161 of them in April, so roughly a fifth of its workforce. It said this was recession planning. But now we're learning that one employee who was already gone is Emily Kramer, the company's former VP of marketing. And the reason we know about Kramer is because this week she filed a lawsuit against Carta, accused it of gender discrimination, retaliation, wrongful termination, and violating the California Equal Pay Act. We spoke with both Kramer and her attorney, Sharon Vinnick, the day the lawsuit was filed, and per her side of the story, she says she learned that she was underpaid when, in the summer of 2018, it partnered with the women-led investment collective, Hashtag Angels, to produce a report that highlighted ownership of venture-backed companies' equity by gender. The suspicion driving the report, and later proved out by its findings, is that with salary, where women continue to earn less than their male peers, they're also given a lot less equity ownership in the startups for which they work. Kramer, who says she spearheaded the effort, says internal analysis showed that Carta too was allocating less equity to women than men, and that she wasn't immune to the problem. She discovered that she was making $50,000 less than her male peers, and that her original equity grant was just one third of the amount of the shares paid to other employees. In its defense, the company bumped up her pay by $50,000 and provided her nearly 300,000 more stock options in addition to the 150,000 options she was originally given. But Carta declined to backdate or accelerate the options to account for the previous six months of her tenure. That matters to her because of Carta's ever-soaring valuation. It was marked at half a billion dollars when she joined the company. By the time she left, it was valued at around $1.7 billion. Now it's worth $3 billion.
1: On Wednesday, Tesla filed suit against Rivian, an electric vehicle startup that has raised over $5 billion in capital from the likes of Amazon, Ford, Cox Automotive, and BlackRock. Tesla is alleging that four ex-Tesla employees shared Tesla documents with Rivian. In its lawsuit, Tesla says that two of the employees admitted leaking confidential documents to Tesla investigators. Tesla also states that, quote, recently acquired sophisticated electronic security monitoring tools, end quote, allowed it to document the theft of its property. Given Tesla's stock has tripled in the last year and the company now is the world's most valuable automaker, with a market cap exceeding that of Ford and General Motors combined, it's curious that Tesla has decided to attack Rivian, which has yet to deliver its first electric vehicle to a customer. Why give Rivian the ink? It must be annoying to Tesla that Rivian is targeting its employees. Indeed, Tesla makes a point of saying in its lawsuit that Rivian has hired 178 ex-Tesla employees, roughly 70 of whom joined Rivian directly from Tesla. Rivian has approximately 2,300 employees. And Tesla has sued other startup automakers before, such as Zoox and Aurora. Perhaps Tesla will discover that an ex-Tesla employee gave secrets to Rivian on the order of auto co-founder Anthony Lewandowski, who pleaded guilty to stealing confidential information from Google's self-driving division and giving those secrets to Uber when Uber bought his company. But just by filing this lawsuit, Tesla has elevated its rival in the eyes of the outside world and made people think that Rivian might be a future competitor of Tesla's. And that does not help Tesla one bit.
0: Another story that caught our attention this week was about Amazon in the Wall Street Journal, which talked with more than two dozen founders, investors, and deal advisors who said the company routinely uses investments in startups and the process of meeting with startups that it doesn't later fund to help develop competing products. One VC, Jeremy Levine of Bessemer Venture Partners, was quoted in the story as saying that Amazon is, quote, using market forces in a really Machiavellian way. He added, it's like they are not in any way, shape, or form the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. They are a wolf in wolf's clothing. The story is really a must-read. The journal talked with company after company that outlined how it copied what they did then tried to drive everyone else in the space out of business. The whole situation is, of course, every startup's biggest nightmare. Earlier this week, I interviewed a former dealmaker for both Google and Facebook, who's now a partner at Norwest Venture Partners, Preeti Yusef Chaksi, about this very concern. She said that when dealing with a potential acquirer, you really have to use your best judgment and figure out a way to divulge what you're working on without giving away the secret sauce. But of course, that's not easy. She said, for example, that Facebook had done deals in the past where it wanted to get under the hood of a core technology, and the only way it could do it was to look over the shoulder of a key engineer or CTO of the target company to review the source code. But... Even if you are careful about not giving away too much to Amazon in those initial meetings as a potential strategic investor, you'd want to think that once the company writes you a check, you don't have to worry about opening the kimono, but clearly you do. This is Amazon, yes, not known for its angelic ways, but even still, this story was jaw-dropping and it should really turn off any but the most desperate startup from taking investment dollars from the company. We should add that Amazon says it does not Use confidential information that companies share with it to build competing products. Up next, our interview with Corinne Wadera, who helps lead Casa Verde Capital, the venture fund founded by Snoop Dogg, the rapper, entertainer, and businessman whose real name is Calvin Brodus. Snoop spied an opportunity years ago to fund what he loves, cannabis, and Casa Verde closed a debut fund with $45 million toward that end in 2018. Casa Verde has funded numerous startups, many of them infrastructure-type plays, some of them alongside Tiger Global Management, and all of them involving Wadera, who is an alum of both Goldman Sachs and Nomura Securities, who joined the firm initially to help with fundraising, but who now oversees the firm's day-to-day operations. I've interviewed Wadera before, and curious about what's happening in the cannabis space during the pandemic, we were eager to talk with him again to get a feel for what's going on. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Foundershield has just released its Venture Capital and Private Equity Risk Management Guide, which provides VC and PE firms and their portfolio companies with common claim scenarios and best practice strategies to mitigate risk. Download your free copy at foundershield.com.
0: It's always really nice to talk to you. I haven't talked to you since we saw each other last at an event in San Francisco hosted by DCM last year, although that feels like a decade ago now.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Good to see you.
0: <laughs> so there was a lot of interest in cannabis in that moment. Again, I think this was May of 2019. And then I haven't followed the industry closely, but it feels like the headlines have been pretty consistently bad. Layoffs at Tilray and MedMen and funding challenges. What is going on?
2: I think certainly what's happened to at least what feels like the public perception of the cannabis industry is not too dissimilar to the dot-com bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Where there was a lot of hype, a lot of it driven by public companies, speculative trading, and valuations which weren't really founded in reality and mm-hmm. were a lot more on, you know, projections multiple years out into the future and then crazy revenue multiples on top of that. Things just got really frothy. And that eventually burst. And the date where it would got together is probably close to the apex of that moment, right? April, May is when things started to trade off. And it's been those names, the public names in particular, have been hit particularly hard. And I think that's what's led to a lot of issues. On top of that, We were always wary, we run a venture firm and we focus on private businesses and even within that, mainly ancillary peripheral opportunities, but especially in the public names, I I don't know if it was driven purely by scarcity value, but there was definitely an incentive to go public. So you had a lot of companies go public well before they were prepared to. And then you had a lot of companies which were just, quite frankly, poorly run Poor management teams, some with with even real ethical concerns and on how Mm -hmm. they ran their businesses. I think that all started to come to a head and which led to a pretty serious implosion of the public names. So I think on average, the Canadian and the US names, all of which trade in Canada, are down like 60 to 70% as a whole for the index. It was pretty painful for sure. But what's so interesting is that even though that has been the public perception and the headline of what's been happening to cannabis based on these public stocks, the reality is the macro has continued to improve, right? So for example, sitting here today, four plus months into COVID, cannabis has really proved itself to be a non-cyclical industry, something that we always knew, but hadn't really been battle tested. Cannabis has been deemed an essential business everywhere across the U.S. We had Mm -hmm. record sales in March, April, May, and the trend has continued. And now that we are getting into an environment where governments are going to be looking for additional sources of tax revenue, even the potential urgency around cannabis legalization is going to be there, which I think overall is going to be massively positive for the industry. So while the public valuations have taken a beating, the actual fundamentals of the business overall, not just here in the U.S., but globally, have been improving dramatically.
0: That's great. In California, cannabis dispensaries have been deemed essential businesses. I'd seen in Massachusetts, I don't know if the governor reversed course there.
2: He reversed course. Yeah, exactly. That was the one outlier. And then he reversed course too, which was
0: Okay, great. great. Yeah, his concern initially was that people were going to be driving in and bringing COVID with them.
2: Exactly. What's been interesting is a couple things. One, as you can imagine, in a moment where... People are especially anxious and Mm. problems with sleep and stress are probably at a, at a high cannabis obviously has been something many people have been turning to. And then beyond that, what's, what's also been interesting, just like many other areas of the economy, we've seen the transformation to Delivery and e commerce really rise even in cannabis. So, one of our businesses, Dutchie, which enables retailers to launch their own e commerce and have their own delivery and pickup, saw their gross merchandise value increase by 600% over wow. the COVID period. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable.
0: Are you also involved in ease?
2: We were early investors in ease, yes.
0: You were talking about some of the legal problems that the publicly traded companies have had. Ease just very recently found itself under the spotlight because former executives were trying to process consumer transactions as if they were made to third-party vendors. Just wondering what you think of that situation and how serious that is for Ease.
2: It was certainly concerning and something that I believe is certainly in the past, but there's always been a massive issue with the cannabis business that you can't really access traditional banking like other uh, industries can. And one of the the big uh, issues there is credit card processing. I don't know a ton of the details and and where that lies currently, but that was certainly what we read uh, as well in the the reports. But I know that's not anything that he's involved in anymore.
0: I just wondered, broader picture, if that thing... Again, tarnishes the industry, makes it harder for everyone to raise money. Are you on your second fund? Or are you raising a third fund?
2: I don't think we're talking about where we are in the fund cycle just from a SEC perspective. but yes, we are right actively investing across m- multiple vehicles.
0: What are your conversations like, maybe not specific to this moment exactly, but with institutional investors, are you finding, new investors that are coming to the table or maybe the earlier investors who still believe in this opportunity? And who are those earlier investors?
2: It's been fascinating for sure. I think the conversations have changed dramatically from when I first entered the industry to today. Initially, we were probably unable to get in front of uh, a lot of the pensions and and endowments to have those conversations. Now we're at least having those conversations and they're interested to hear about what we're doing. I'm not quite sure if they're ready to pull the trigger, but certainly Mm. even just the fact that they're interested and want to understand the industry better is, is a huge change. And I think a big part of that is because some of the funds that many of these folks are involved in, they have some exposure to the cannabis industry now because they've decided to step up. Some of the folks who are most notable would be Tiger Global, Thrive Capital, even seed funds like Lara Hippo. We help Bring Imperial Tobacco into one of our investments, Altria, Constellation brands have as well. So now, whether you intended it or not, you sometimes have indirect exposure to the industry through one of Mm -hmm. the funds that you may be an LP in or one of these companies in, in which you hold stock. So I think that has forced the broader investment community to take note. But I'd say for the most part, still, both for funds like ours and for a lot of companies, either they're taking on money from cannabis-specific investors like us, or it's private checks coming in from family offices or high net worth individuals who are deciding to take big bets themselves. The more traditional institutions, for the most part, are still not involved. But definitely those that are further ahead on the curve, as you would expect, are a lot of the Silicon Valley venture firms.
0: Right. And I I know that you've co-invested with Tiger a number of times. And in fact, I'd seen a co-investment of yours back in April. I think it was a follow-on funding for both of you in GreenBits. Correct. But current, you don't announce all of your deals as is true of a lot of investors, but I haven't seen you be super active this year. Of course, there is a lot going on. So I'm just wondering if you have hit the pause or taking time to reassess, or it's a more matter of, again, just not necessarily advertising every investment?
2: It's a mixture. When COVID hit... We definitely took a breath and wanted to see how certain things would play out. We had a couple of investments already underway, light like green bits, which mm. we completed, but we wanted to understand how the environment was was going to get affected and impacted. And, and as I mentioned, for, for cannabis, it's been largely positive, but certainly I think across the board, not just in cannabis, you didn't have as much activity the, the first few months into COVID. I think that's changing now. You'll hear a couple of, of, of big announcements from us in the next few weeks itself, a, a couple of new investments, one follow-on. In one new as well. So I think for us, it's picked back up and we're as busy as we've been. But yeah, certainly we saw, at least post-COVID, a little bit of a slowdown for sure.
1: What are the biggest pockets of opportunity you see in cannabis investing right now?
2: We have two main areas of focus. One is we love the ancillary technology-led opportunities, the businesses that are going to benefit from the overall macro theme of legalization and globalization of the cannabis industry. And so we think there are a lot of great businesses, whether it's software for retailers, manufacturers, ancillary services like staffing, financial services, even though the large financial institutions aren't playing in cannabis, there are a lot of opportunities for some specifically tailor-made solutions. And we've invested in a couple of those. One of our businesses is a business called Bespoke Financial, which helps with short-term financing for the industry. So we still see a lot of development in those areas. And then we're also very interested and excited in consumer-facing brands. I think for a long time, Cannabis sales were driven by potency and price, right? To use the alcohol equivalent, it would be if every consumer made their decisions by walking into a liquor store and asking what's the highest proof vodka for the best price. That has been changing over the course of the last few years, and we expect that to, to continue to happen. If you look at any other mature consumer industry, the majority of value is actually in these consumer brands. And cannabis, that's not the case today. So we see that as a huge value shift into the future. And that's another area that we're spending a a lot of time on and we'll be deploying more funds into.
0: Last year, speaking of that, we were talking about precision dosing. And I think maybe at that time, you had just invested in a vaping company that made it easier to adjust how much you're consuming. Can you remind me of the name of that brand? And also, have you invested in similar precision dosing type brands?
2: That is a technology business called Indos, which has created a medical-grade device which you can actually dial in the exact amount you're taking in. This is one of those issues that I think a lot of people have with cannabis: is that if you're smoking a joint, it's sometimes unclear, even in a traditional vape, how much am I consuming? At first, the the larger perception was, well, oh, cannabis users don't care; they can tell. That's not necessary. But you know, that's not how we treat anything else. With alcohol, we know exactly what we're getting for the most part. When you're having a shot of vodka or you're having mm-hmm. a glass of wine, you're more or less in control and you have a at least a, a tertiary understanding of your dosing. Whereas in cannabis, outside of edibles, where you can get a very specific dose on knowing how much THC you're ingesting, um, the problem with edibles is the onset is much longer. The onset for smoking is a lot quicker. So it it would be nice to understand exactly what your dose is and to be able to dial that in um, as required on demand. And so that's what Indos did. They actually created a device which measures the vapor and the cloud as it's coming through the channel. And with an LED meter actually tells you what you've ingested. So Indos is doing well. That's much more of a business that's going to be working with other consumer brands and allow them to use their technology to have that precision dosing.
0: Is the marketing strategy much different for these brands? I've also talked to beverage brands, for example, one backed by DCM is called K-pop. How are they reaching customers and do they have to be any more careful?
2: Yeah, I mean again, cannabis businesses that's another huge restriction that a lot of them have, right? You can't use a, a lot of the traditional channels that would be available to non-cannabis businesses. No Facebook ads, no Instagram, no Google AdWords, things like that. So, you have to be creative. There's a lot of marketing is happening in-store within the dispensaries. You can take billboards. You guys are in, in the Bay Area, I'm sure you've seen that in the past and maybe even still a lot of billboards have various times been taken over by cannabis brands or cannabis retailers. And then a lot of experiential marketing pre-COVID, how do we get in front of the customers in person, physically, and show them what our product's about. So yeah, it's in many ways, throwback to what was pre-digital conversations. There is some sort of, you know, influencer, influential marketing online that can still happen through Instagram channels or things that a brand may own, but oftentimes those get shut down as well. So yeah, it's a tricky world from a marketing perspective for cannabis businesses.
0: I'm just wondering, have you seen anything particularly creative? I was reading the LA Times had done a story on a brand called Drew Martin, which is hosting these Zoom parties. Where you're sent your product and you open it online as you're like dialing into a Zoom with a bunch of strangers and you smoke yeah. and you drink and you talk. and, talk and about I'm it. Pretty clever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I like that a lot. And I think that's a sort of creative way to connect and in- engage, especially in these times when you can't leave your homes. I think a, a lot of chatter on-, on online communities has been helpful. Again, pre-COVID, the experiential events were always great because it, it also gave you a sense of how you would where this brand fit from a, a- static and from the idea, whether it was music-based or culinary-based, et cetera. There was some interesting opportunities there. I think people will continue to get creative in many ways sometimes limitations brings out the the most creative solutions for companies. Speaking from a 20,000
1: foot level, it seems to me that one of the limitations of investing in cannabis is the exit opportunity. There aren't a whole lot of companies that are in a position to buy a cannabis business because of legal issues in part. How do you address that? Have you had any acquisitions in your portfolio and what types of companies are you targeting for those acquisitions?
2: there's a few ways to look at that. For ancillary periphery businesses, I do in fact think there will be a lot of acquisition opportunities in the future from strategics who decide that they want exposure to the cannabis industry and they may get it by buying a point of sale business or buying an e-commerce player or buying a financial service businesses because that's less directly touching the plant and not directly involved in a licensed cannabis business.
1: And would those primarily be tobacco businesses like Altria, et cetera?
2: No, not necessarily. It's going to be how comfortable are you on the risk curve, right? You're making a a valid point, which is that until we see full-scale legalization or until we see at least at minimum some of the current bills in front of Congress passed or the rescheduling of cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 or lower, some companies are going to be concerned about jumping into the space. But clearly, that's the opportunity as well, right? And and I think as long-term investors, that's how we see it. We, in fact, have had a couple of exits, And it's been driven mainly by follow-on investors who want portions of our business. So we sold one business to a private equity firm, which was pursuing a roll-up in a particular category. And the other couple exits we've had have also been to financial investors. So given that on average, we come in earlier in the life cycle of a business and seed series A has, has been largely where we've Um, done a lot of our investments. The investors in subsequent rounds who want exposure, we often have opportunities to sell there as well. So exits haven't been an issue for us.
1: Do you see the climate towards acquisitions and legalization changing with the Biden administration?
2: I think regardless of who's in office, we're going to see a lot of progress in the next four years. And that's because this is no longer truly a partisan issue. I think Biden will be very helpful. He's even laid out many of the things that he wants. I don't think he's taking it as far as full-scale legalization in his term, but he's certainly in favor of full-scale decriminalization, letting states have full authority of what happens in their businesses, and also the rescheduling of cannabis down from the current Schedule One level. So all of that will be incredibly helpful and will bring a lot more players who will feel comfortable investing in the space and, again, potentially acquiring some of these businesses as well.
0: Aaron, who's in Washington fighting this fight for the cannabis companies?
2: There are a couple of groups out there folks who, who are leading lobbying efforts. Some of the larger multi-state uh, operators are active on that front too. You saw even with with Acreage Business, which a couple of years ago saw folks like Bill Weld and John Boehner join the board. So there is some level of political activism that's happening. There are a couple of, of lobbying groups that are active on that front. I don't think it's very loud and, and pronounced, but I think now we've just hit that tipping point where across the board, there's so much support for legalization that in congressmen, these states are particularly active in pushing for progress within Congress.
1: Am I correct in thinking that you have a background in public equities? And if so, what public companies out there are you interested in, excited about? Are there ways for individual investors to play this market who are not investing in VC funds?
2: Yeah, my background is in public equities. I spent about a decade at Goldman Sachs in roles on the equities desk. Yeah, I think there are a couple of public names which are really well positioned. I would mention GTI in particular, which is a multi-state operator that is really well run. The CEO, Ben Kovler, is exceptional and has done a really good job of building his business and is very conscious about creating shareholder value. There are a few others as well, which are well run. I think the issue unfortunately, is that the public landscape in cannabis is fairly limited on the type of opportunities you're seeing. It's almost exclusively multi-state operators or licensed producers. There are some companies which offer some ancillary exposure in their specific segments. That's company Greenlands, company Kush Bowls, which focuses on some ancillary products. There are REITs, which give you some exposure to the real estate and those companies that are engaging in sale leasebacks. Some of those are interesting as well, but I think that's one of the issues currently is that the public markets offer you only a very specific type of exposure to cannabis when the reality is there are lots of exciting businesses outside the realm of just cultivators, manufacturers, retail and distribution.
0: I wanted to ask in terms of real estate, it's getting decimated. Who knows what's going to happen in the commercial sector? I just wondered, are you seeing opportunities there to, I know, from our previous conversations that you don't touch the leaf. I'm just wondering if there's some way to capitalize on that aspect of the industry.
2: You're seeing a little bit of that in pockets of cannabis, not really having anything to do with COVID. I think this was beginning starting April, May of of last year when a lot of the air was being released out of the cannabis bubble and people just weren't as excited about throwing money into these companies at absurd valuations. So you have a lot of companies which are just not structured to operate unless there's a ton of capital coming through. And that has afforded some interesting opportunities to buy up assets at a discount. So yeah, I think those opportunities are certain there. Again, not really where we focus our energies. It's not even so much about touching the leaf anymore for us, much more about where do we see long-term value. And I think over time, uh, unless you're able to capitalize on being in a limited license state, cultivation, manufacturing, traditional retail aren't really that exciting to us. We think over time, those businesses become more commoditized. So for us in this moment, it's much more about the companies that are going to grow out of this, right? And again, I would use the analog to the dot-com bubble, right? Which is that only a very few companies survived. And sure, some of them became Amazon and, and whatnot. But a lot of the best companies really came after And were built in the wake of that crash and used all those lessons, built their companies a lot more prudently, and then grew into a lot of the behemoths we see today. So I think for us, what's exciting is that a lot of the best opportunities in cannabis have not been started yet or are just starting. We feel incredibly fortunate to be in a position where we're investing in these companies generally in their earliest phases
0: an obnoxious question, but do you ever worry that you're too early? There were so many smart ideas, obviously, that didn't make it in 2000 and that are now flourishing.
2: I think there was a risk that we were too early. I I don't think that is the risk anymore. We were very lucky more than anything to have timed it fairly well, right? I mean, living in California, as as you guys know, cannabis has been illegal in some form for almost 20 plus years. So you could have always been on the cusp of like, oh, this thing is going to be huge. But I think from when we really came into the industry, 2015, 2016, till today, you've seen such a huge amount of activity with a lot of these key tipping points or or dominoes falling, including legalization in California, Massachusetts, Nevada. And now I think you're going to see a whole host of more legalization next year too. So we're fortunate in that we ended up timing it pretty well. And, And then again, because we our in venture. And we have a little bit more of a longer time horizon with 10-year funds and whatnot. I think we have the ability to see these through as well and, and not have to be as rushed or impatient as sometimes folks in, in public equities have to be.
1: I just have to ask, what was it like raising that first fund and going into meetings, talking about the fact that you're investing in marijuana and that Snoop Dogg was your partner? How did that go? How did that go? Great, that
2: go? great, great question. Yeah, it I'd say it was a double-edged sword, right? I think we had a lot of things that were stacked up against us at that point. So while for some people on the other side of the table, that was a really exciting proposition, and they saw immediately the value of having an affiliation with one of the most important cultural icons in, in cannabis, period. Others were puzzled and wondering, was this a gimmick? And is this a joke? And are you like a lot of other cannabis? businesses just trying to to leverage and and take advantage of this unique moment and make some money or see a spike and, and go away. And I think that forced us to work extra hard to show that we were, in fact, the most institutional firm in the space. I come from a heavy institutional background, but more than that, look at the diligence we do, look at the companies we've backed, et cetera. I think now we're in a much different situation and we've gotten a lot of external validation, which has been helpful, right? With a lot of more traditional funds investing in our businesses and joining after us. But yeah, initially it was, it was, it was complicated. And I think to that point at that time, it, we were unable to even get on the phone or walk into the room with a lot of folks we'd love to have been speaking to. That's changed dramatically now. Maybe a lot of institutions aren't still ready to invest in our space, but it's gotten to a point that they can't ignore it and they need to get smart because eventually they will have some exposure to cannabis whether they want it or not. Well,
0: Alex and I could certainly use more exposure to cannabis right now. <laughs> Karen, it's always so nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for making time for this.
2: Thank you for having me and please stay safe and hopefully we'll be able to meet in person again soon.
1: That's it. If you like what you're hearing, please rate us. Also, if you want to suggest a guest, please reach out.
0: Yes. Thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate it. Also, just a quick note that we are going on a vacation, staycation for a couple of weeks, much needed downtime. We will be back when, Alex? The week of? August 10th. August 10th. Okay, great. See you then. Take care, everyone.